0: Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jen pollock michelle is the author of three books, most recently, Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World, which received Christianity Today's Award of Merit in the category of Beautiful Orthodoxy. Here's what Wynn Elliott said about Surprise by Paradox. What do you call a book that rattles our comfortable certainties while somehow leaving us sturdier and more joyful? A book that dances in the mysteries without going mushy or cynical? A book that stubbornly insists we find God in the kitchen as much as the cloister? I call this book a paradox. I call it a wonder. Jen Pollock-Michelle, thank you so much for being on The Habit Podcast.
1: I am so excited to be here.
0: Um, you are um, a person who's done a lot of thinking about paradox. Your your most recent book was "Surprised by Paradox," and um, wh- how does coming to grips with paradox make one a better writer? Have you, have you, surely, you've done some thinking along those lines?
1: Well, truthfully, when you when you sent that question, I was like, "That's a, that is a really good question." I don't know if I've always thought about it in terms of my writing life. I've thought about it. A lot in terms of my spiritual life but i it reminded me of alan jacobs book how to think Uh and i have really appreciated that book and how he talks about thinking is not just like an intellectual exercise that it is actually it is a function of moral character and i think paradox has has the promise of forming the kind of virtues in us that we need not just for good thinking but for good living you know so there's a lot of curiosity that's required for paradox i think there's humility that's required for paradox i think there's patience and a patient paying attention to things um so that makes you a good writer because those are the qualities i mean those yeah. are the virtues truthfully that you right. need for good writing yeah um that that was kind of initially what came to mind
0: um that's a I haven't read that Alan Jacobs book. I, I need to because I hear mm. great things about it. Um, and so he he talks about uh, writing as a, a, a the moral dimension of of thinking.
1: He does, you know, and I, I mean, I think we see that, don't we? Like, kind of in where we are specifically, like in our society. Yeah, um, just all the fracturing. And the lack of charity and the kind of culture of outrage. Like, I mean, I think good thinking, when you think about the moral dimension of good thinking, all of that is required, right? Like kind of thinking the best of your, of a person who disagrees with you. Like sustaining attention long enough to hear them out, you know, Uh and to understand their position. The best of their position, not just the caricature of their position, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I think there's a lot of yeah, it's great. Yeah,
0: um, the I'm, I can't remember if I've said this on this podcast or not, but it's something I say often enough that I probably have. But um, Aquinas said that the the great enemy of truth is self interest. Where mm. I, I get my idea of what I want to be true, and I don't, I'm not open to what's actually real and true. Mm. And I think that's uh, yeah, must be the same thing Alan Jacobs is saying.
1: And it's, and it, uh, Jonathan Haidt, you know, is another person, I think, who's doing really interesting work on this, you know, the righteous mind. He mm-hmm. talks about, like, we basically, we make our, moral reasoning is more a function of intuition, and then you come to the reasoning, like, after after your intuition. You know, you just yeah. sort of confirm what you think you know to be true in a very gut-level, visceral sense, you know? Um, and I think that's, I think that Aquinas quote sort of taps into that a little bit you know of just a confirming what you want to be true um
0: yeah yeah. um can you give us a, a working definition of paradox
1: i can yeah um you know, I think it's interesting because when I first started writing the book, I thought I was writing a book kind of more about mystery Uh and my editor said, no, I think this is really about paradox. And when I think about the differences between those, I mean, mystery is kind of like, uh, like, Oh, we don't really, this is a vague kind of nebulous concept or idea. And paradox is not that paradox is actually an assertion of truth. It's just a truth that seems self-contradictory you know, where you have to hold a couple of things in tension. Um, and there are paradoxes that are more, I mean, if we think about scripture, in scripture, there are paradoxes that are a little bit more just um, paradoxes of language, you know, so that uh-huh. the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Well, how can that, how can both of those things be true? You know, this doesn't, Seem to make any sense. And when you think about it long enough, you know what Jesus is saying, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But there are paradoxes that are much harder to untangle when we assert that Jesus is both God and man, you know, fully God, fully man. So paradox isn't the moderation of two things that seem self contradictory, like, oh, kind of half God, half man, you know, if we were to think Uh about Jesus, no, fully God. Um, fully man and I really appreciate Chesterton on Paradox because he in his book Orthodoxy yep. and I think this is just such a wonderful way to think about it he talks about Paradox um, as an affirming of the white and the red and never the pink yeah. You know, yes. and he says the church do you know that quote it's so I, wonderful it's, I was just
0: about to bring it up actually
1: oh really yeah
0: I mean when you started on down that path but but you're doing great keep trucking <laughs>
1: I mean, I think that's, you know, he talks about, yeah, the church's hatred of pink. And so a lot of times we want to moderate things. You want to kind of find that like compromise middle road position, but that's not paradox. Paradox Uh is the affirmation of these two things that seem like you can't hold them to be true at the same time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As distinct from just a are, are you drawing a distinction between a verbal paradox and and something that goes deeper than that? Is that is that what you're getting well, at? Well,
1: I I I don't necessarily do that in the book. I've mm-hmm. I've been helped by some people. You know, it's funny because after you write a book, you still keep learning about the thing you just wrote about. You're sure. So somebody actually introduced me to a guy named Austin Freeman who wrote his dissertation on paradox um, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he was the one who kind of helped me think about the different kinds of paradoxes. He says that there are three different kinds of theological paradoxes. Um, You know, I'm not an expert on those, like, very sophisticated um, nuances of paradox, but I think it's... So, in the book, I don't necessarily talk about the difference, I guess, Mm -hmm. but but although there are differences. okay,
0: Yeah. Um, You're... Your subtitle to, to your book is is uh, basically leaving leaving behind the either or and, and picking up that both and or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Forgive me, I should I don't have it right in front of me. Um, but so what happens when we sh- when we s- move from an either or mindset to a both and mindset?
1: Yeah, I I mean I think an either or man- mindset is kind of a constricted sort of. Um, I would say unimaginative and by virtue of being unimaginative, probably faithless positions sometimes, Hmm. you know? So I talk about how really the book, I mean, inauspiciously started in a counselor's office, you know, where I was in a hard relationship with a member of my extended family. And what I couldn't figure out was like, how do I go forward in this relationship? And I kind of went to the counselor thinking like, well, here are the two alternatives, right? (laughs) Either I sever this relationship because it's so dysfunctional, or I just suffer all the dysfunction and the lying and just pretend it's not happening so I can love this person. And the counselor said, you know, do you think there could be more alternatives than that? And it was such a simple, obvious question, but I thought, how often do I actually do that in my life? Mm. You know, I I sort of reduce things to, you know, these two kind of options, two alternatives, and, and I actually in my spiritual life, you know, prayer sort of is like offering to God those two options, you know, (laughs) do I go, do I go, do I stay, you know? And he's like, um, neither, you know, D, (laughs) you you gave me A, B, and I'm going to give you um, K as the, as the answer. Um, And so I think if we, if I don't think that everything is a both and, I want to be clear about that, Uh but I think we need to be able to enter into the possibility that our imagination is constricted um limited and there are possibilities beyond what we can imagine and sometimes that both and is the position of imagining those different possibilities I often think it's the, the both and is the position of sustaining tension and dissonance, uh-huh. which, is, which is something I don't really like to do in my life. I like things to kind of be easy and tidy and neat and, you know, I want to know that I'm doing the right thing um, and I, that I'm on the right way, you know? Yeah. And I think the both and position, um, it, it doesn't let us resolve things as neatly, but it is the way of faith often. Uh-huh.
0: You know, I think that's – you make a great point because um, uh, both and, I think, you know, to, to move toward both and, you know, feels like you're moving towards some sort of squishiness or, or loosey-goosey mm. or whatever, taking the easy way out, so to speak. And, and uh, you make a great point when you say holding those things in tension is not the easy way out.
1: No. It's difficult. Right. And there, trust me, I think there are people that would use the both and as a kind of slippery slope, you know, like a theological kind of mushiness. But uh-huh. I think that is the difference between um, just uh, talking an affirmation of mystery versus an affirmation of paradox. I, I do think that paradox help, helps us to affirm things that are true um not so it's not just the that we affirm things that are unknowable you know uh-huh. um but we affirm things that are true the tension is in the understanding uh, understanding of that truth that it just doesn't kind of fit our categories um and our sort of neat kind of easy tidy formulations
0: yeah 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 it's the um um <laughs> Let's how to put this? I mean, it feels sometimes when we talk about both and, it feels like you know we're moving towards some slippery slope toward relativism or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but but on the other hand, if the truth turns out to be both and, then you've got to hold you've got to hold of that truth. I mean, you can't. What am I saying here? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you're not getting on a slippery slope if it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not getting mushy if that's what the truth turns out to be
1: right and and i i mean i just love that you know you think about like the incarnation i mean the ultimate sort of paradox mm-hmm. and how many centuries the christian church had to wrestle through that wrestle to kind of articulate what that meant you know what it <laughs> wrestle to understand it, wrestle to articulate it, wrestle to understand the implications of what that meant for understanding who God was. Like, they were doing the hard work of thinking.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And um, and I think that's the beauty of Paradox, you know, is it, it invites us into that kind of participatory kind of role. Um, I mean, sometimes I wish, you know, everything, truth were just sort of handed me, handed to me, like in these nice, easy, like, you open it up and, you know, it's Ikea furniture, put it together. You yeah, know? right. A, a, even a dummy can do this. And mm-hmm. I think there's something way more beautiful um, that's offered to us um, as a Christian, particularly, I believe that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I have, um, here's something I want to talk through with you since you've, Done more thinking about paradox than I have. Um, I've, I've often, um, here and there, made the case that story is a great way to help people grasp paradox in a way that, um, you know, some sort of more formal, um, uh, you know, a sermon or an essay um, can help somebody grasp paradox. Um, because there's something about the way stories are structured and you know the idea of a the U catastrophe and things like this that that, mm. that lends itself to to helping us grasp things that, that are really hard to i mean by definition a an paradox is hard to work out um mm-hmm. uh, rationally or, or with our reason um but what you you tell me i mean is is, is the um is that um maybe i'm not being generous enough to um to more formal forms of writing than storytelling, how important is? Um, um, uh, I mean, and, and I, for instance, also I should point out that Jesus, in communicating mm-hmm. paradox, told fictional stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but anyway, what what, are, what position do you you take on that? In terms of, um, are there are there other good ways besides storytelling to convey paradox?
1: Mm. I mean, I think you're right. I think you're right to say that if we wanted to rely just only on kind of reasoned assertions and propositional truth, like we'd end up kind of in a circle, (laughs) you know, like we we could say these things, we can assert, you know, these truths, but that doesn't necessarily mean that were any further into understanding them. So I think you're right to say that there are other ways. And I think the Bible makes (laughs) incredible use of of narrative and image and symbol and story. And I was actually just rereading for a talk that I'm giving, um, Hans Boersma has a book. uh, He's a professor at Regent College in Vancouver. And um, he talks about how theology has suffered from like a lot of control. Like we want to kind of, We want to rationally, um, we, we rely on our reason and we want everything sort of understandable and systematized. And he said, we need to actually recover use of narrative and image and symbol. And I, that sounds true to me. I actually, I wish I could remember the quote, but I'm staring at my, um, a book by Robert Alter, who's, um, a Hebrew scholar and um, not a believer. and I think he's probably Jewish. I'm not sure. But I, I don't know that he's a believing Jew, you know, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, but anyways, he's written a lot about um, how, how striking it is that the, so much of the Old Testament is written in prose. Huh. And he says that that allows us to kind of grapple with the complexity of what it means to be human. And I think that seems true to me that um, as you kind of like you t- think about like the story of Jacob in the Old Testament, and there are just <laughs> there's a lot that we have to kind of puzzle over. Like, was he a good guy or was he a bad guy? Yeah, you know. And and there's no explicit kind of f- statement on h- his moral virtues or vices. You know, we yeah. have just this collection of stories. And again I think it allows us to sort of participate in a different way it engages us in a different way so I I think I'm I'm with you that we kind of find a limit propositional truth is limited mm-hmm. and story has a lot of possibility which is why I really think the task of um Christian writers I'm I'm excited actually to see a lot of Christian writers returning to Story as kind of a, as the more um, primary medium of communicating truth. I think we've been nervous about that. I think a, s- a lot of writers are nervous to share their own stories. Like, is that so self-indulgent and so self-focused? And I mean, it certainly can be. Sure. Um, but it can be an incredibly powerful way of articulating truth that can't be sort of neatened and tidied into those propositional statements.
0: Yeah. You know, we we get our we have in our head the idea of what authority are, ought to look like, mm. and I mean, I, I'm I'm borrowing from NT Wright here when he says, you know, people who think of themselves as being really serious about the authority of Scripture. Well, if you're serious about the authority of Scripture, that one thing you have to do is take Scripture in its own terms, and and, yes. not, and not so you know my my idea of authority is somebody's going to tell me what to do, and mm-hmm. and therefore I look to Scripture to give me a list of rules, but but what if I mean? I, I don't know where this is that N.T. Wright says this, but he says you know, it's, it's like you go to the to the your um, drill sergeant, expecting to be given your orders, and he says, "Once upon a time," <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> and and so you know if we're serious about the authority of Scripture, we have to take we have to take it as on its own terms, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, which much of the time is story or poetry, um, and sometimes it's lists of do's and don'ts, but not all that often compared i mean mm-hmm. you know, as a as a proportion of of uh, of what's there
1: it's interesting i have had so many conversations about this with my 17 year old son who's actually in a period of just kind of examining his faith you know uh-huh. and asking really rigorous intellectual questions and i think i think that's a really important um I think it's really important to do. I'm glad he's doing it. Um, and I'm glad that I'm having, we're able to have all these conversations with him. But one of the things he has been asking me is like, why didn't God make it easier? Like, why not just give us a book like mm-hmm. that, that for, it's universal truth for all time, like for every, you know, and, and in one ways we have that book, but in other ways we have a book that's so it, it is enculturated. It comes to us from a particular time and from a t- particular people group and so like you look at the old testament um there are some hard things in the old testament like why didn't god just sort of say like slavery is wrong you know end of story like why not that from the very beginning and that's not what we have in scripture and we and we often really want that um but i think we have a way more beautiful book i think we have a wiser book i think we have a book that um is actually forming in us the virtues that we talked about at the very beginning, the virtues of thinking <laughs> uh-huh. and um, the moral character that's required for thinking. And, and thinking is a part of faith. It's not the whole of it. Right. Um, but I think it's a part of it.
0: Yeah, that's so much good stuff. All right, switching gears a little bit. Um, I've, been, I, I've been looking at your back and forth with Sean Smucker that, that y'all do on your, on your mm. blogs. Tell me how—so uh, he, he writes these dear, dear Jen notes, and you write Dear Sean notes. How did that mm-hmm. get started?
1: That got started from a Twitter conversation last summer. Um, I, t- I, I think I might have responded to something he said. I don't know. I was curious how he was talking about his domestic life and his professional r- life as a writer, and I just, it just sort of piqued my curiosity because I think a lot of times— women writers have that conversation. Like, how do I sort of balance mm. my domestic obligations and my professional ambitions? And I was like, Oh, here's a here's a guy who's talking about that and he's got six kids. Yeah. And then to kind of learn a little bit about his story that um, you know, when writing is lean, um he's driving Uber um uh-huh. for Uber. And so it just came from there and I said to Sean, Would you be interested in just hosting kind of a you know, pistolary (laughs) conversation on our blogs. And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) And for me, um, Letters is like such a low stakes kind of writing. Yeah. I just get so tied up into knots. I mean, it's like as soon as I sit down at the computer and it's like, oh, now's the time to work on the book. I'm just, you know, I seize up. Like I have nothing to say, you know, but like, oh, I I can say, or whether it's a book or an essay or something that's formal and I'm going to have to turn it into an editor and people, lots of people are going to read it. Whereas a letter just feels like it, it, there's a lot of room in it to kind of, be exploratory and not be definitive on anything. And I've, I've been really appreciating the conversation.
0: Um, well, I, it's, it's just fun to have that little, that little glimpse. I I need to provide a link to that in in the show notes for this, because it's, it's really been fun to see two writers talking about kind of whatever's on your mind, as you said. And, and, um, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's pretty wide ranging stuff. Um, and, uh, I, one thing I learned, um, I've learned from this, is that you're a, a, a Capon fan. I am. <laughs> Robert for our Capon, yeah. Um, I, his, his book was... Devotee,
1: right? Oh, my goodness.
0: His, uh, the Supper of the Lamb has, has probably had more of an impact on, mm. on my writing life in the last, of anything else I've, I've read in the last five or ten years. Um, I just love mm. that book. Um, and um, so I'm glad to know you love it, too.
1: I do. You know, I reread it over Christmas because I was, um, moving into a season of a lot of cooking. Uh, so I thought, I just need to remember why this is important, you know, and yeah. you just, just have like a vision for why this matters. And so I'm like, okay, I've got to reread the supper of the lamb.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, his, his, uh, the way he awakens the reader to to the well to the thinginess of things you know mm, to to the yes to uh loving things for their own for their own sake and on their own terms, which is a little bit what we've been talking about in some of these other matters you know receiving uh the truth as it comes to us mm-hmm. um, and the facts of the world as they come to us uh rather than than um than thinking about what we wish they how we wish they were different. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, I just, it's just made a huge impact on me. I I love, I love his work.
1: One of the things that I was mentioning to Sean in a letter was just this um, vision of wholeness, like to um, his work, like what he's commending is a vision of wholeness um, Mm -hmm. for the maker. And that's a word that I've been using a lot recently, because I think I'd like to think of myself more as a maker than even as a writer because there's so many things I'm making in my life. You know, I'm making books and you know all kinds of writing sort of things I'm, I'm making that yeah. but I'm making a marriage you know uh-huh. um, I'm a partner in making a marriage and um, I'm making in terms of the parenting that I do with my children I'm actually making a home like I have a house and I'm yeah. trying to make it a space that w- is welcoming to people and I'm making things at church as I um, direct a variety of different things a magazine I'm an editor there and so just you know I just I so one of the things that Capon had said was that, you know, the eye of creativity is the, is the eye that conceives all things into loveliness. That yes. was a phrase that had struck me, and I yeah. thought, oh, that's a vision for all the making that I'm doing. Whether I'm standing at the stove or where, whether I'm sitting at my laptop, I'm, I'm conceiving things into loveliness. Yeah. Um, imagining the lovely, the lovely world that God has made and that God will remake
0: yeah yeah that's um and in that i think it's in this the same part of the book he says you know boredom is a he talks about boredom as a as the great yes the great enemy of of goodness really i mean mm. it, it, the eye that can look on the 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 beauties of the world and be bored is is in trouble <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: um well that's uh that's oh i just just love that stuff um Making, Can you say, just give me an idea of, of why you find the word making so helpful?
1: Well, with, making, yeah, go ahead. I was
0: going to say, so helpful, especially with regard to, uh, how does that reframe your your conception of yourself as a writer when you think this is just another thing that I make?
1: Well, it helps me to remember that I'm made in the image of a maker, mm-hmm. you know? And so making feels like, Um, something that directly connects me to who God is, you know, in the beginning, God made. (laughs) Um, And so, as opposed to just writing, and I also think it helps me see things less in competition with each other, Uh um, that, you know, my writing life isn't competing against my domestic life, you know, I am making, all of these things are making. And whether or not, um, and I also don't know what publishing will hold for me in the, in future years. I mean, I I can't say that I'll be writing in the same way in 10 years. I mean, I hope Mm -hmm. so. I mean, I I hope, um, but who knows, you know, but I know, and I think a lot of times we think that, well, if this thing ends, then that's the end, Right. you know, well, whether or not publishing ends for me i will still be making and and there will also be there's going to be an expiration date on my domestic life in the sense that like uh, we next next actually this spring we're sending number two off you know two mm-hmm. will be gone and three will still be at home so um my domestic life is going to change and it's going to evolve but i'm always going to be a maker and i yeah. think it there's it's just helping me to imagine so broadly this kind of idea of calling um yeah. It's yeah. helpful to me.
0: Yeah. And as I'm sure you know, the, the word poesis that we get poetry from just means making. So that a poet oh. is a maker.
1: No, I didn't know that actually. Ah, well
0: there you go. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Phil, uh that's that's um I can't put my finger on why that matters so much to me, but I just love the fact that, that that's that a poet is just a maker. Mm. I guess it just it just feels you know, kinda like um it just feels so much more down to earth than you know yes. poetry <laughs> which doesn't i mean i i realize a, a poet any poet will tell you that it really is a an, you know an earthy endeavor um mm. but um but the word poetry we have these highfalutin ideas about it and um but the the idea that it's the same poesis um is what's used to describe you know cabinetry as well as poetry Hmm,
1: uh, and you you can make your bed. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. You can conceive your bedroom into loveliness by making that's your right. bed. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> spoken spoken like a true mother. That's right. But yes. you're right. It has it it has arms big enough for the ordinary and the the small and and it makes what feels very cosmic into something beautifully ordinary.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay, well let's. I, I want to wrap up with. The question I always wrap up with, and that is Who are the writers who make you want to write?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, I read a lot of spiritual writing, so that's the kind of writing that I do. I um, love writers who can like texture like writing, spiritual writing with like real life. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the only blog I subscribe to is Laurie Ferguson Wilbert, uh-huh. and um, I love her writing. I, I've read her book that's forthcoming, so I'm really grateful for her. I, I just feel like she draws people into a textured, material, physical, earthly life as much as a spiritual one. Um, and I would say one of my favorite books is Wynn Collier's Love Big Be Well. Um, um, I don't know if people are familiar with that. I feel like that book needs to be on everybody's shelf and it's fiction, but it is, it's just, it's spiritual writing that's just textured. It's letters of one, it's letters of a pastor to his congregation. And it just, I don't know, it has a kind of, it has an earthiness to it. And, um. I also love Lauren Winner. She's um kind of a favorite yeah. writer. I'm often opening I have to I have to say I think I think it was this book, Surprise by Paradox. I kind of got stuck on the introduction. And I'm like, how did Lauren Winner start wearing God? I'll open that and <laughs> try to <laughs> um, you know, imitate some of the things she's done. Um so I you know most I I can only think of nonfiction people, which is bad, which it sort of should, reveals my bias towards nonfiction. A, a nonfiction writer that is not a, f- a writer on faith is Caitlin Flanagan. Um, I don't know if readers I, I or listeners are yeah, familiar with her. You
0: don't know her? I don't, I don't know her work, no. I, I think somebody else has mentioned her on this podcast, though.
1: So. Okay. She has, I think she has several books out. She's an essayist as well. So you can often find her in The Atlantic, is mm-hmm. where I read her a lot. Um, she had a essay back in december which was incredible on the abortion debate and she's um doesn't doesn't necessarily draw the same conclusions as i do but um she is so brave she's like so um unequivocal in her writing Hmm. and and i love that because i think it's hard to do it's hard to be, you know, very direct and bold and brave and say no. I, this is what I think is true. Um, and what she essentially says in that essay is, while I, I I'm a abortion supporter, there's no doubt to me that the abortion is uh, abortion is the taking of a life, mm-hmm. and it's it's an act of violence. You know, and I mean, this is published in the Atlantic.
0: You're, you're, <laughs> I mean, t- you're talking about the essay "Losing the Rare and Safe Legal and Rare." Is that the one you're talking about?
1: Um. I have it. No, that would I think, have, that would
0: have been just a month ago. Is that? I think
1: it? the dis. I have the dishonesty of the abortion debate, but m- maybe maybe it was titled something different in the mm. print magazine. Sometimes I uh-huh. find that print versus versus online. Because
0: it turns it's, out I, I have read her. And I thought that was a great. I thought that was a great essay. I just yeah. Didn't, okay. Didn't so so
1: it's probably the same. It's the same one. Uh-huh. I'm sure it's the same one because it was. I think it came out in the December issue. Yeah. Um. I have a lot of admiration for people who can write. Well, but not just well in the sense of oh these beautiful sentences, but like persuasively right. and yeah. um, very emphatically.
0: Yeah, um, it's a, it's refreshing to find a writer who who loves who loves you know reality and and wants to help help their readers align with the reality, even when it turns out that that their understanding of reality is different from mine. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, Jen, thank you so much. For, uh, for being on The Habit.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having
2: me. Well, let's do it again someday.
1: That sounds good. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Bye. bye
2: The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song, Too Good, as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs.
0: The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast
2: was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.